Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. Welcome. So this is the 26th Sunday of Ordinary Times, and the reading from St. Paul is from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. And this is the letter in pertinent part. Do nothing out of selfishness or out of vainglory. Rather, humbly regard others as more important than yourselves, each looking out not for his own interests, but also for those of others. One of the things to think about in the practice of humility is the idea that humility is your sense of self-possession, your understanding of yourself. And because you understand yourself, other people don't get to push your buttons. Uh, you get to understand other people as other people, and you get to see yourself as a limited person loved by God, because um, otherwise you're just trying to take God's place. And so that's the gospel today, and we're going to talk about humility. And the gospel is from, of course, Jesus talking to his disciples, who are not the most humble people on the planet. And Jesus asks them, what is your opinion? Man had two sons. He came to the first and said, Son, go out and work in the vineyard today. He said in reply, I will not, but afterwards changed his mind and went. The man came to the other son and gave the same order. He said in reply, Yes, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did his father's will? And he answered the first. And Jesus said to them, Amen, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. When John came to you in the way of righteousness, you did not believe him but tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw that, you did not later change your mind and believe him. Humility, knowing your true situation. And so as we think about humility as the antidote to pride and self-love um, that is at the heart of most human problems, let's think about the story of St. Therese of Lisieux because this weekend is her feast of her of of uh, her birth into eternal life back in 1897. And so we're gonna talk about St. Therese, how she wrote about Satan and the uh, presence of the satanic in her, in her convent, and then the triumph of humility, a little play that she wrote. In the second half of the 19th century, France, formerly one of the most Catholic countries in the world, the eldest daughter of the church, was really just torn in part over religion. There were the monarchists, the conservative Catholics that wanted to bring back the king. There were the atheists, the free thinkers as they were, but mostly atheists um, who were uh, sons and daughters of the Enlightenment. Um, the Russians complain about it. Dostoevsky, Turgenev, Tolstoy all complain about the French Enlightenment and these English, uh, European ideas uh, that undermine traditional faith. And then there's everybody else in between. So when Therese is born in 1873 in Alençon, France, um, she's born into a very pious family. Her mom and dad have both been canonized. Most of her sisters ended up in the, in the convent. And Therese, who had a very, uh, very troubled life, her mom died when she was like four years old, and she just a series of abandonments as her elder sisters went off into the convent. Um, but she just was this very pious little girl. And uh, 
but like most of the stories about religion, and it's your story too, whether you'll accept it, you see these big things happening out there in the world. Um, and you're just this little story that's going on while these big events are going on. And you think it's the big events that are important, but really what's important is your story because your story is your story and it is part of God's story that's being told. And so to give you the background, uh, Therese is about 11 years old in 1884. And there is this man, it's his nom de plume, his writing name was Leo Taxil, but his real name was Marie-Joseph-Gabriel-Antoine-Jocan-Paget. There's a mouthful. Um, he had been accused and sued for libel of uh, Pius IX, the pope who is now dead. Leo XIII was the pope. But as you know, we live in a time where Catholics were attacking the pope. This is nothing new for the, for the church since the time of the Enlightenment. Divisions are part of every level of the church. And so um, he claims that Pio Nono, as they called him, because he was uh, so against modernization in the, in the world, he wouldn't allow a railroad into the Vatican City states. And so uh, he was just uh, there to be attacked by people like Leo Taxil who was a free thinker. He was just an atheist. And so he published this book, and Leo XIII struck back in an encyclical called Humanum Janus, not specifically against Taxel, but Taxel would have been included in it, um, about this evil that's struggling to uh, attack the church. And uh, Leo XIII put the name on it. He called them the Freemasons. And so you've probably heard that the church has this very uh, troubled relationship with the Freemasons because it was, it could be, not necessarily so, but it could be very anti-Catholic, a lot of bigotry. Uh, and it goes back into the 18th century. Without getting too deep into what Freemasonry is, uh, it's enough to say that it became synonymous with atheism in the 19th century France. Whether that's true or not, uh, overall, is I think uh, the free, every Freemason would dispute that. But anyway, in the Catholic imagination, that was what Freemasonry was about. And so Taxil decided he was going to take this on. And so just to kind of give you the end of the story at the beginning of the story, Taxil decided he was going to undermine Catholics in France because this is a fight for the soul of France, although the irony, of course, is atheists deny the existence of the soul. But still, everybody wants to control. And so Taxil, who was, had been a Freemason, feigned conversion to Roman Catholicism. Now, you have to understand for this story to work, Nobody knows he's lying. And so he writes this book about his conversion to Roman Catholicism. Um, and then he begins to write these other books about Freemasons and Satanism. And he links it to an older kind of uh, anti-Catholic group that's really rooted in pagan understandings. You may have heard of it, the Rosicrucians and, uh, and Alchemy. Um, it's, these are uh, difficult things to like completely categorize because people's beliefs are just so fragmented.
But there was this guy named Thomas Vaughn, who was a famous, apparently French, um, at least a French descent uh, uh, Rosicrucian and alchemist. And Taxil claimed that Thomas Vaughn, who was well-known, had a daughter named Diana who supposedly had an American father because, you know, all great heirs come out of uh, out of uh, America and was born in South Carolina, of all places. The story was very complete. And uh, she had followed her grandfather, I guess, her father into Freemasonry, um, but a particularly virulent form, according to Taxil, uh, satanic Freemasonry. She'd had a major conversion experience when she had been asked to desecrate the Blessed Eucharist. And so she had fled the control of the Freemasons. And now Leo Taxil alone uh, could tell her story. And so as he says, and I'll read a quote from it. It's really pretty amazing. Uh, he just makes up these outlandish stories about the Freemasons to see if he can get gullible Catholics to believe it. Because you tell people who just hate your organization anywhere that they are unimaginatively evil, um, well, of course, you're, you're just appealing to what people want to believe. And it's still like that. If you want to believe that Pope Francis is an atheist or Pope Francis is a heretic, you're going to believe anything that's written about him. Well, anyway, Taxil goes whole hog on this. He has uh, Diana Vaughn, this imaginary character, uh, writing things that there is this snake that writes prophecies on her back with a stinger on his tail. She marries a human being that turns into the crocodile, but he can still play the piano very well. Um, some of this stuff actually gets picked up in a Bob Chick um anti-Catholic publications out of South Carolina, which is kind of interesting the way that it, uh, the way that it plays out, uh, how it comes back into American culture. Um, but the, uh, the basic idea is that uh, he is just leading people on. Here's what Taxil wrote about his Diane Vaughn hoax. Uh, and this had been going on well into uh, the 1890s. Uh, and up to the time about when St. Therese dies. So if you think about it, Taxil's been part of French culture, writing these books and these false articles for um, 10, 15 years. Uh, and so he just gets to be accepted until people start thinking, uh, this guy's just making this up. But Taxil, when he's finally outed, says this, Ah, the jolly evenings I spent with my fellow authors, hatching out new plots, new unheard-of perversions of truth and logic, each trying to outdo the other in organized mystification. I thought I would kill myself laughing at some of the things proposed. But everything went. There is no limit to human stupidity. And that was the part of the whole plot, just to prove that other people were stupid and would tend to believe the worst things they could believe, and all of this by a manipulative guy who didn't even believe in being a decent human being. So what's this have to do with St. Therese of Lisieux? Um, hang on and find out. And so Therese, born in 1873, at the age of 15, that's 1888, she entered Carmel. Um, it was kind of a family thing. Her two older sisters were already there. 
And so, uh, and she was just a very family-oriented person, but she was also deeply religious. There's all kinds of stories you could tell about her, but this story uh, that I'm gonna tell is like one of the bookmarks of her life, and it's about humility. And it's a great example of the humility of a saint that is oh so human, because it's one of the things I love about Therese. She is definitely human. Uh, there's this great picture of her uh, the day before she enters uh, Carmel. I did a short little uh, video on it for our St. Therese Novena, but you can find the picture, and it's, it's Therese with her hair up on her head, and she's wearing this, uh, in the black and white picture, it looks like a black dress, very elegant, but really it's a very dark green dress. And if you look at the full length of the picture, clearly someone has painted out something on her uh, holy derriere, uh, so it looks like a dress that just drops down. But it was a dress that in, the t in that time, there was a decoration called, I think I pronounced a chow, C-H-O-U. But it's like a big bow that women would wear on the back of the dress and it would enhance their backside. Uh, there was a, a woman who was uh, Therese's age who saw her the day before she went into the convent, said she was dressed in this beautiful green dress, carrying a parasol, grinding her heel into the uh, pavement because she was a pretty I think she was wired pretty tight. That's my guess of it. Uh, there was a great heart there, but she, she was an anxious person. And it was probably on the day she had that very picture taken, and it was probably the dress you're seeing in this picture is, um, it was the dress she was wearing. Why is it remarkable? Because after her death, her sisters had that bow blotted out. And on the photo, if it's, you get the a color photo of this black and white picture, you can see they did it with blue paint. So it, uh, you don't see that she was wearing this affectation because part of what Therese endured was this idea, especially with her sisters, that she was just so saintly because she was, um, but that their idea of sanctity meant that she couldn't like pretty dresses. Uh, her ideal of sanctity is um, that she didn't want to be attractive. Um, but she wanted all of those things. But more than any of those things, she wanted to be a saint. And so from 1888 to her death on September 17, um, uh, 1897, so uh, about the age of 23, uh, to give you the sense of how short her life is. This story I was telling about Leo Taxil and his hoax about Diana Vaughn, all this is coming to a head in 1896, about a year or so before she dies. What's interesting about it is in the story I'm gonna tell is when she first gets on that she's dying. She's in her room late at night and um, she's gagging on something. She coughs it up and she puts it aside, goes back to sleep. When she gets up in the morning, she looks at her little handkerchief, it's full of blood, which is a sign of tuberculosis, which is a huge killer in these cloistered, comet, uh, uh, these cloistered communities because um, it's such a contagious disease and everyone takes a vow uh, that they're going to, to live in this community. So hard to avoid getting infected. So she finds out she's dying basically. And um, there's a lot of turmoil in the convent. In June uh, 1896, their beloved prioress, Mother Marie de Gonzague, Gonzague, who was, I think, the prioress that accepted her into Carmel. Uh, she's 62 years old, and you know in your 60s, I'm 67, um, things start to slip. 
And so there's kind of a, an election for the new prioress and she loses. And um, uh, Therese is very sad about that because she loves this old nun. Um, and so they decide that they're gonna have a big party to celebrate um, that she was the prioress because the community still feels very divided and there's some angry thoughts about the people that, that backed um, the prioress that lost uh, against the people that backed the prioress that won. won. Uh, just because you go into religious community doesn't relieve you of the burden of being a human being. Grudges, annoyances, this is such a big part of Teresa's story where actually the, this little way of love is how is it that you reach out to people that you find annoying? Uh, and in humility, you just admit to yourself that you find them annoying. Um, you have to admit that in justice, you've been wronged before you can really forgive. You can't make excuses. Well, all this time that they're planning this big party to celebrate the change in leadership and to thank Mother Marie for her time, although I think she's not feeling very good about being kicked out as prioress. Uh, it's during this time that um, there's this story of Diana Vaughn breaking because the story I'm gonna tell you takes place over this year just before Therese dies. And so um, they hear the story about Diane Vaughn, Diana Vaughn, who was the son of this famous Rosicrucian, uh, which is kind of a pagan sect, that she is now converted to the Catholic faith. Because it's not that she's a Catholic who became a Mason, it's she was an atheist Mason who became a Catholic. And um, her Catholicism was, uh, was basically uh, her conversion was provoked by the Eucharist. And of course, when you say that, you're gonna like flip out every single Carmelite across the planet because um, they love that. And so Therese was so touched by that that um, she sends, uh, she wants to send a letter. She wants to do something. And so she decides that she has the opportunity because she's the head of the novitiate that she has the opportunity to put together a little play. In her life, she writes like six plays. They're little short little plays. They're called in the language of the Carmel, pious rec recreations or recreations. They don't have TV, they don't have radio. They pray, they work, this is their life, simple diet, but they uh, put on entertainments for each other. And so she decided that in honor of Diana Vaughn, that she's going to do a play about uh, humility, and it's entitled The Triumph of Humility, and it's going to be about uh, battling Satan, because Diana Vaughn had been a Satanist, I and mean, she overcame uh, Satanism through her love of the Eucharist, so you can see why Therese is writing this, this play. Uh, and so uh, when she writes this play, she had previously written a play about uh, St. Joan of Arc, who was St. Therese's favorite saint. And so when she wrote her little previous play to the Triumph of Humility, guess who played St. Joan of Arc? Well, it's a saint playing a saint, which is maybe the only time in history. But when she does that, it's another one of these pictures of Therese. And in this picture, it's Therese dressed as Joan of Arc in this blue, uh, long blue dress with fleur de lis over it, with, uh, with armor made out of tin foil uh, and um, a flag of France, or it could be the one where she has this ball and chain 
uh, attached to her. She was doing her own publicity photos, which I think is so modern of St. Therese. She, one of her little things is she doesn't want to climb a ladder to heaven. She wants an elevator where God will just reach down and pick her up like because she has this little way of trust in God, complete confidence in God, that if she tries to live humbly and love her neighbor, God will just do the rest. And so um, she sends a picture of herself dressed as Joan of Arc to Leo Taxil with the instructions to give it to Diane Vaughn and let her know that Carmel and Lizu is praying for. You know, people, I think some people wrongly believe that when you go into the uh, monastery, that you're shut off from the world and you have no idea what's going on. But that's not the point of the, the monastery. The point of the monastery is to pray for the world. That The job of the monk and the nun is to, uh, by the power of prayer, intercede for all of these people living these active lives outside of the monastery. So uh, Therese and the whole community is praying for Diana Vaughn because she's fighting the good fight, uh, according to at least the story that Leo Taxel is, is, uh, is telling. None of them understand that it's all a complete fraud. They just bought into it so deeply. And so this party is coming up. It's going to be after Easter. Um, and Therese already is, uh, knows that she's struggling with tuberculosis uh, when she writes this play. Um, and so the big night comes, and everybody wants to like just go over the top, get whatever good food for uh, living in Carmel is. Maybe they have fish or meat or something, because a lot of their diet doesn't include fish or meat. Um, and so she writes this play, and the play is called the triumph of humility. It's going to be performed um, on this night that Sister Marie de Gonzaga is being honored. And it's there's actually two plays. One's a short one written by another sister that's kind of a comic thing. But Therese's huge production, which is going to bring down the house, uh, is a star is going to be set up like this. So it's going to be about the novitiate because she's the head of the novitiate. And then she gets two other sisters, a postulant and a choir sister, that are in the novitiate uh, to be the two other actors in the play. And they're sitting with a screen at their back. And then if you can imagine, they have other people back there playing demons and St. Michael. And so the idea of the whole play is that when you enter into Carmel, you're still going to be struggling with, um, with, with evil. And that the way that you triumph over evil is through humility, understanding the reality of your situation. Because Satan can't mislead you if you know who you really are. This is the idea of the play, and it's part of the little way. So it starts out, and um, guess who's playing uh, Therese of the Child Jesus? Oh, yeah, Therese. It's like uh, she's one of these Hollywood stars that writes her own vehicle, and then is going to star as herself in her own vehicle. So the first line of the play is like this as it opens. What happiness to find ourselves together, to have a fine, free day. Let's see, my sister Marie of the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't you love to have a sister named Marie of the Holy Spirit? What do you think of the feast of our mother? Have you ever seen anything in the world so charming as the union of hearts, this sweet gaiety? And so it's this conversation from uh, amongst these novices. And then the conversation turns to Satan because one of the novices would love to just 
uh, listen in on satanic conversation. Would love to just have some sense of the supernatural. And Therese points out what John of the Cross says, that you're to avoid that at all costs. You don't want to tune in uh, to this other world. Why would John of the Cross say that? Because don't you want to know that there really is this invisible world? Because John of the Cross says, and it's a problem of ghosts and demons and everything, if you, if you understand Catholic teaching on it, is you never really know what you're dealing with. Um, it could appear, as St. Joseph says, uh, as, a, uh, as a, a spirit of light, like it's a holy angel, your guardian angel. But all Satan has to do is get in your head and start misleading you a little bit at a time. Um, but Therese's line is, if we just trust in Mary, she assures us the demons are no more uh, to be feared than flies. But still, one of the younger sisters wants to just have a little taste of it so she can feel more assured in her faith. Um, and that is when, as it were, all hell breaks loose. And so behind the screen, you start hearing these loud voices. Suddenly this hard voice says, Shut up! I didn't gather you together for the pleasure of hearing your cries and the racket of your chains. I have serious things to tell you. There is no note of it who actually played Satan, uh, presumably one of the other nuns. But it's Lucifer, Beelzebub, Amadeus, and they're all talking about the rage against human beings. And so um, how they're going to invade this Carmel and how easy it is to turn the nuns against each other. And then if you can get the nuns fighting, well, then hell's going to reign in the convent. Okay, so you see why Therese is writing this? Because she understands she's in a convent where there's these divisions. And she's using this play to talk about how it is that evil uses divisions in the church. Because the key is in the church to learn to love one another. The key in the church is to reaffirm unity. We have to have conversations. Everybody has to be able to talk to each other about things that they're concerned with. But when it turns vitriolic, and it's very vitriolic in American Catholicism right now, very sad with, um, with the voices of people who claim to be leaders in the, the Catholic Church. Therese would have words for them, that the idea of promoting divisions and schism in the church, accusations, um, this is self-love according to her. So there's this uh, big part in the satanic part of the play where Satan talks about how it is that they're going to conquer Carmel. And so in conquering Carmel, he holds up this scale. And on one side of the scale, on his pitchfork, which you can see apparently as a shadow shining through this, uh, this screen, there's three words, poverty, chastity, and obedience. All nuns take those vows. And the other side of the scale is pride, independence, and self-will. And so in this Carmel, this imaginary Carmel, that scale is slanted, and guess who's winning? Pride, independence, and self-will. At that point, St. Michael the Archangel enters. And St. Michael, Satan says, has no business being in hell. But Satan is, I mean, Satan is always afraid of St. Michael, and St. Michael is always fighting on behalf of the nuns at Carmel. Because St. Michael really likes Carmelite nuns, according to St. Therese of Lisieux, and she should know. And so his, what is his weapon in the play that St. Therese, the triumph of humility, 
He puts one more weight on the scale of chastity, poverty, and obedience. And that word is, that scale is, you guessed it, my friends, humility. And then, boom, humility, chastity, obedience, uh, and, um, and poverty went out. At which point, uh, the demons all cry out, we are vanquished, we are vanquished, enough, enough, Michael, torment us no more. And so then back to the action with St. Therese, and the child Jesus, in the third act. There's three acts in her play. Um, and so uh, they're talking about all of it amongst themselves. And one of the nuns say about this conversation in hell, you know, we should tell our prioress about this. She would want to know. Then the other nun says, no, if we told her that we listened into a conversation between St. Michael and the demons in hell, she would just laugh at us. Then St. Therese gives herself this great line. On the contrary, if she laughed at us, we'd have the opportunity to practice humility. Uh, but I think she'll believe us anyway. Well, I mean, it, it is a group of nuns. They should know what the devil looks like. But I love that when I am mocked, it gives me a chance to practice humility. More on that. One of the things I didn't mention about the play, The Triumph of Humility, is it had been um, devoted not just to uh, Mother Marie Gonzaga, but to Diana Vaughn. And it actually used her name in the play as someone who was fighting against satanic forces in France. And so the Leo Taxil um, debacle kind of uh, imploded them. He held a big press conference in, uh, in Paris and he had a magic lantern where he was projecting a picture onto the wall. And it was the picture Teresa sent uh, of herself dressed as uh, Joan of Arc. And there were all these French reporters in there. And because he was such a liar, no one believed there was a real nun. They just assumed that uh, Taxil was lying again. But when that was reported in the paper about that picture, everybody in, with Therese and Carmel knew who they were talking about. But she was already in the infirmary dying. And so um, when she finally wrote her book, um, she put something in to this effect, um, that the impious who have lost the faith through the abuse of grace, um, how could they advance into nothing but darkness? And then she wrote about herself, it seems to me I've never sought anything but the truth. Yes, I've understood humility of the heart. Uh, but at the, that last, a shred of, of uh, self-regard torn away as she died. I just think it's a beautiful story. It's a hard story. But people who think that Therese of Lisieux is a saint for teenage girls are uh, just idiots. Um, this is a very strong woman who had had so much loss in her life. Um, how tough she was. Uh, but it's what St. Paul was talking about, about humility. Um, keeping always your eye on Christ and the cross and uh, practicing love of neighbor, even when the people you've uh, given your love to are not very worthy of it, like Leo Taxil and the fictitious Diana Vaughn. Um, they were loved much better than they deserved. But that's how you become a saint, because God loves us much better than we deserve. So there are some things to think about. This has been another edition of Oral Valley Catholic. <laughs>